1: Get 80% off your impression
0: kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, powered by SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep current on the most important news from China in just a few minutes a day, via a free email newsletter a free handy smartphone app and of course at the website at subchina.com in addition to aggregation from a wide range of news sources subchina also features some original reporting and essays and it is now being edited by my man jeremy Goldcorn. and we want you to check it out i'm kaiser gua coming to you today from the Seneca south studio in downtown durham north carolina Jeremy Goldcorn is actually in South Africa right now, or en route there, attending a conference, and you're going to be hearing more from him from his native country on some forthcoming episodes. Well, the U.S. election is over. Hillary Clinton has conceded, and as much as it pains me to say it, Donald Trump is now the president-elect of the United States of America. China's president, Xi Jinping, has called Trump to offer his congratulations and, in a boilerplate statement, emphasize the importance of the bilateral relationship, the common interests the countries share, and his hope that cooperation would continue on the basis of principles of non-conflict, non-confrontation, mutual respect, and win-win cooperation with differences controlled in a constructive manner." Very boilerplate. Uh, What's this going to mean, though, for U.S.-China relations? What's this going to mean for the United States' relationship with its treaty allies and effective protectorates, countries like like Japan, when Trump's commitments to them are kind of now in question? Uh, What about North Korea? What about our agreements with China on greenhouse gas emissions, which were so hard won over decades now that a climate change denier is going to be taking the reins in Washington come January 20th. So with me to talk about all this and more is Isaac Stonefish, former Asia editor at Foreign Policy Magazine, a veteran journalist and now senior fellow at the Asia Society Center on U.S.-China Relations. Isaac, thanks for making the time to talk to me. And uh, warm thanks also. Let me shout out really quickly to Eric Fish from the Asia Society for acting as recordist for this session from New York. Uh, make sure to check out Eric's outstanding podcast for the Asian Society. As I was saying, Isaac, man, thanks for taking the time. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. As we were saying before, I mean, because it's usual to say doing great, but yeah, it's been kind of a intense 24 hours. We're Americans. We should we should just sort of say great. I'm doing great, and then <laughs> thanks for asking. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I'm I'm trying to, to you know put a brave face on it, but. Uh, I feel the same. I mean, obviously, I was up until ungodly hours just watching the results pouring and then tearing out hair. You know, I mean, my f- face was frozen in this sort of rictus of, of horror and, and fear for, you know, many, many hours as, as mm. results came in. Yeah,
1: I, I watched it with... I watched the election results come in with a Chinese constitutional law professor who I'm profiling for a story. And after about 11 o'clock, I sort of lost the ability to speak or listen to any of his questions and was in the strange position of having him comfort me that hey American <laughs> democracy is not all that bad and the system's very strong and you know this is a this is a this is a good and positive sign that the system works. And-
0: yeah, and, and that's that's really one way that, that people both in China and here have sort of spun it. And, and we'll get to that. But let's let's talk first a little bit about public opinion about the US election. Uh, among Chinese people ahead of November eighth, that faithful day, um, you've written on this, and I've also written based on my own observations, and not really on any hard empirical survey data or anything, but about how first-generation Chinese immigrants to the U.S. have been talking about this in the months leading up to the election on on WeChat groups. So let's let's compare notes, Isaac. Uh, what's your sense for how support between the two candidates was distributed among different groups of Chinese people that you looked at, presumably in China?
1: Yeah. So. Again, thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. I'm gonna paint with a pretty broad brush here, and you know, first off, gonna cut out the roughly half of Chinese who don't have cell phones, uh, aren't engaged at all, or mostly with the rest of the world. And my reporting is focused on coastal elite in China, and I think with that, you can break them down into Trump and Hillary supporters, of course, and those who support Trump did so justified it for a couple of reasons. Uh, One is this particularly nasty stain of anti-Muslim feeling that I witnessed with several Chinese Trump supporters that I spoke with. There's this sense that there's a sort of a global Muslim conspiracy, this, this global Muslim wave that's going to do to the civilized world, you know, the United States and and Europe and China, what the Mongols did to Song dynasty or to what they did to Europe, just this, this over kind of overwhelming tide. And that comes from I think both a misreading of history and a series of terrorist attacks domestically in China committed by Uyghurs, who are a uh, Muslim people, uh, in northwest China, and people seem to have conflated those things into imagining some sort of grand Muslim conspiracy. So they're they're
0: essentially buying the idea that that these essentially separatist attacks that have been taking taking place in China over the last few years uh, by Uyghurs are part of sort of this global jihadist wave.
1: That seems to be what they're thinking. And I'd love to read a comparison between the anti Muslim fervor now and the anti Semitism popular uh earlier in the twentieth century, kind of the global Zionist conspiracy, the protocols of the elders of Zion and all those really batty and dangerous things people were believing back in the day, kind of the difference between the, you know, the evil Jew and the evil Muslim, how those uh how those would play out. And I think it'd be a fascinating comparison. Also a a scary one, but yeah, they they seem to buy into that idea. And that's... Oh,
0: we certainly had plenty of anti-Semitic dog whistling coming from the Trump campaign, from the alt right, but it it was you know quite separate from this this anti-Muslim thing. I'm I'm, I'm yeah, I'd be very interested in seeing that kind of data as well. Uh, I mean, it's not an issue that really came up nearly as much when I was talking to or or looking at the writings of first generation immigrants of recent first-generation immigrants in hmm. the area where I live now. Um, you know, for them, it was very much about affirmative action. Uh, I think there was a lot of... Because the um, the, the bathroom bill here, um, it's HB1, or HB2, rather, here in, in North Carolina, was such a hot issue of contention. The sexual conservatism of the Chinese people was really a, a big thing. There was a lot of racism, too. But it was, of course, you know, more about... You know, African-American and, and Latino communities here, especially African-American communities here, with this kind of ready willingness to conflate criminality with blackness, um, which is something huh. that I think you know, he saw as well. What about what about sort of this schadenfreude, uh, this idea? I think that was one sort of area of overlap. I know that there were a lot of people sort of rooting for Trump uh, here. With a, a discernible idea that you know it's going to take the U.S. down a few notches, the U.S. will won't be as high-handed and sanctimonious. Uh, did you did you feel that that was present in in among the Chinese people that you spoke to?
1: I did. And I'd love to hear more about how that plays out with Asian Americans, because it seems like a hard thing to keep in your head at the same time, this idea that we're going to elect someone who's going to drive the whole mess into the tree and, you know, America's going to be in a pretty tight spot and at the same time is going to make America great again. So I don't right. know how people keep that in their head, but I think for that for the Chinese, some of the Chinese that I spoke with, it's this idea that America has been lecturing China on democracy for decades. Right. Yeah, decades. Uh, and this is the best indication since God, I don't know, the Civil War, uh, about the weakness and the failure of American democracy. I mean, you you can't really imagine a better gift to both the Communist Party, you know, certain propaganda departments and, and newspapers, and also Chinese who are just fed up with this feeling that their country is not as good as America because they don't have democracy.
0: Yeah. So that was, that was certainly there. Um, I mean, before we, we start talking about the other side, the Hillary supporters, um, there was, of course, also this, and it's related to what you were just describing, is uh, Hillary's penchant for, for hawkishness, her kind of liberal interventionist bent. Uh, that certainly played into it as well. Yes?
1: It definitely did. And it was expressed in Hillary publicly criticizes China. You know, that was something that people just seem to be unable to countenance that Hillary, and I, I think there was a, a pernicious element of sexism there, that Hillary, this this woman, sort of the understated line there, dares to stand up and in public fora say bad things about China. Right. I, I, how did, uh, in, in North Carolina, for the Asian Americans that you spoke with, how did Trump's and Hillary's views on China play in? I mean, was, was there any of that Absolutely. Anger at Hillary. Uh,
0: my sense, my distinct sense was that these people were recent immigrants and they they, they didn't have any sort of firm allegiance to their new adoptive home. A lot of them, my my distinct sense is, and I think the, the data has sort of borne this out. I saw in these groups a, an overwhelming amount of support for Trump. But when you hmm. look at the actual data, uh, and I've talked to people since and looked at some of this data, uh, among... Recent Chinese immigrants, now there were no date parameters, but who were actually registered voters in the U.S., so presumably people who had gotten citizenship after, you know, uh, who were naturalized Americans, uh, Hillary support was extremely high, over 75%. So I, I can only conclude from that. Uh, that either these people were just so more, much more vocal and were you know, basically browbeating and cowing Hillary supporters into silence or that they were in, indeed a numerical minority. I can only assume that they, they were more recent immigrants to the point that they were mostly just green card holders or, or you know, uh, not actually U.S. citizens and not apt to vote. So I, I got this very clear sense that they still had very much China's interests in mind. And they had a very clear idea that Trump was not apt to try to contain China's rise, was not going to uh, push back on Chinese moves in the South China Sea, uh, was not going to oppose uh, China's eventual reclamation of of the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands, and that sort of thing. I, I was curious, though, with you, with the groups of people that you spoke to, was there an explanation for, or how did they sort of explain away all the anti-China rhetoric that came spewing out of Donald Trump uh, during the campaign? You know, he talked constantly about basically waging trade war with China about, yeah, I mean, how, how did how did they, they see that? Did they just sort of dismiss it?
1: Yeah, it's really funny that they did just totally dismiss it. Everyone I spoke with who was a Trump supporter didn't in any way, feel that that was problematic. And I don't know if that's because they identified more with being a global citizen or, or, or being America or American values. Or if they believed that this was just bluster and part of his appeal, that he would say these kind of vague things, but because he's a man, it's it's fine that he says these vague, crude things, and then behind closed doors he would make very practical deals with the Chinese leadership that would benefit both sides. I mean mm. that's me sort of reading into what they told me, which is, you know, when I'd say, hey, you know, Trump has, has made such that's pretty uh, said, you know, quote unquote, pretty mean things about China, got a lot of shrugs from Trump supporters in China.
0: Right. I mean, I mean, the same thing. In, in our in the case here, um, I, I definitely enlisted the help of my wife, who was always reading, you know, the, the posts on these groups and then often reading them out loud to me. Uh, our distinct sense was that they've seen this before. They're, they're, they're accustomed to this for 20 years or more now. Uh, they've seen this cycle of China bashing in the run up from both parties. And then, you know, once January 20th rolls around, immediately it becomes business as usual. Uh, then they, mm. they were willing to just sort of assume that that was going to be the case again with Donald Trump. Interesting. I,
1: yeah, I, th- I think the other element that played both in China and in America is this idea that the world and America has become too liberal. Too many immigrants, uh, black president, gay marriage being legal— uh, major female nominee and, and it just seems like for some elements in the states and China that was a bridge too far. It just people needed to slow down and, and get back to the kind of white american or chinese male basics.
0: <laughs> and they they really kind of project, I mean chinese male is white american male, right? Uh, in in, in their projections right mindset. yeah it's right. really interesting that you should say that because you know I mean I I you know if you you as you do you follow a discourse on the Chinese internet and there's this new word uh, that has kind of come into currency of late bai uh, zuo. Uh, we talked a couple of times with Mattia this blogger behind the blog publicopinion.com on our show I and mean, he's been a really keen observer of all things public opinion and mm. especially of how the sort of there's a schism in the Chinese public sphere as far as it's reflected in in, in Weixin and on, on Weibo. And on the various, you know, you know, BBSs and whatnot, uh, how it kind of reflects this line of fracture within China uh, and among the kind of 屌思, the self-described kind of losers. Uh, they're always kind of eager to celebrate the downfall of some bidesh, well, this white left public intellectual. You know, this is somebody who is essentially uh, the Chinese equivalent of an American coastal elite liberal cosmopolitan. Mm. And they have that kind of same contempt that Trump does for that political correctness. And and what you're saying really echoes this.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 amazing. You know, I think I've I've been in D.C. for the last four and a half years, and then New York for the last couple of months. And I think we just felt that we had a sense on what was going on in America. You know, myself, my fellow journalists, uh, other kind of people who opine for a living were pretty confident that this was going to go towards Hillary. And it's just fascinating to watch everyone, myself included, or almost everyone be so incredibly wrong And it's humbling also for looking at what's going on in China and what's going on in Beijing and especially what's going on in in Zhongnanhai in that there's so many assumptions that I personally make about the way Chinese people think about a certain thing or the way Xi Jinping or Beijing thinks about a certain thing. And I got to just, you know, being honest with myself, realize I'm probably wrong a lot more than I'd like to admit.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I'm certainly that I am too. I mean, when we're talking about these very things, when we're asking people to you know give us taxonomies of different netizens and, and their political leanings, we're usually lensing that through somebody who is himself or herself, that same kind of uh, coastal right leaning that is left leaning in, in the American context. Since it's, it's all in the mirror in China. Neoliberal sympathetic uh, cosmopolitan, right? Anyway, mm. I, I'm curious what, what you think in in terms of how these people map onto the Chinese political spectrum, how how they I mean, there, there are on the one hand these kind of, you know, loud nationalists who make common cause with Trump support. But, you know, who are are on the traditional Chinese left. Right. Which kind of has a cluster of values around traditionalism, statism. Uh, authoritarianism, sort of a preference for, uh, and then and, and of course, nationalism, uh, versus the other side, where I, I also seem to detect Trump support as well from people on the kind of neoliberal right, I'm people who are actually vocal champions of human rights in China. I see quite a few of them who seem to be quite okay with a Trump presidency. Is that wrong? Or am I am I reading that wrong? Or is that something you've seen as well?
1: I think that's a great question. And, and I see it as sort of you know, if I'm going to throw some numbers in, sort of Uh 75-25. And I would say that the people on the Chinese left who don't support Trump are those who feel that Chinese domestic stability is paramount and that the way for the Communist Party to keep governing like it's done for the last 10, 20, 50 years, how, you know however long back you want to look, is to maintain as stable a, a domestic environment for China as possible. And a Trump victory injects a huge amount of uncertainty not only to the globe but to China as well. And they don't know how much China's uh, how much Trump's going to push various I mean maybe he'll, he'll decide to be a human rights proselytizer in China. Uh, maybe he'll really try to go forward with his plan to slap, I think, what, 45% tariffs on Chinese exports. Maybe he'll do something else that no one is thinking about right now that sends the Chinese economy in a tailspin. You know, All, all these things are possible, and for all the gains that Beijing gets from a Trump presidency— I think just this this fear of uncertainty is a is a pretty huge negative. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Just no, so you, you think
0: I, I I tend to agree. So there are people on the Chinese left who uh, are not supporting Trump and who, despite Hillary's kind of liberal interventionism, at least she's the devil we know. There's it's not that in- uncertainty, right?
1: Exactly, and, and I also think there's probably a strain on the Chinese left of, well. You know, we would like to be, if not the world's policeman, then a more assertive actor in the world, and it's easier to do that under the American umbrella. Whereas, if the U.S. pulls back, like it might do under a Trump presidency, there'd be less cover for China to be exerting itself internationally without as much attention. Huh.
0: That's that's an interesting take. Well, what what about the the Chinese right? That is, you know, people who are sort of more of the Champions of universal values uh who have tended i think in the past to kind of uh to to like democratic administrations in 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 China, uh, in from the United States what do you see among them now
1: hmm. that's a really good question and i I have not met someone from the Chinese right who supports Trump, but I haven't talked to enough people where you know that is is a is a glaring lack, and I would, you know, just speculating here, would guess that support for Trump on the Chinese right goes for people who appreciate the idea that a democratic system can also elect someone with authoritarian tendencies. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of the perfect. It's it's almost Singaporean in that you know the the guy that uh, is most similar to. Dictators around the globe gets elected in a completely free and fair election,
0: right? Uh, then that's that's fascinating. I think coming back what you said about uh, that kind of disconnection that, that so many of the liberal coastal elites have felt and, and how, you know, we're really paying the price for that now. By this point, you'd have to be pretty dense not to see, you know, connections between Trump's rise, the Brexit vote this summer, the rise of different nationalist populist parties across Europe. And you know, by now I think we all kind of agree that some of its causes were, you know, the unevenly distributed fruits of globalization and the very rapid, very disruptive, very disoriented advances that we've seen in technology that kind of you know outpaced our our society's ability to absorb those changes. Um, the really, frankly, very disorienting changes to uh, societies brought on by having more porous borders, by having more immigration, all these things that you talked about. Um, this has definitely created a working class who are, are in the United States, at least very resentful of the educated urban elites who are in finance and technology and academia in the professions. And then like you and me are in media. Um, hmm. b- but my question is, this: is there a dynamic at work like this in China? Are Chinese people experiencing the kind of downside of globalization at all? I mean, I've said many times before on this show uh, that I think that China is the country that has benefited the most from globalization, but also one of the countries that have suffer- suffered the most from it, you know, from environmental degradation and from, you know, horrific income inequality. Are we seeing those same sort of tensions that we've seen in Europe and America now surfacing in China?
1: I think the uh, that's a great question. I, I think the one major tension we're not seeing is immigration because yes. China lets in so few immigrants and they have such a relatively small footprint in China that it's really not an issue. I, I've never heard anyone in the seven years I, I lived in China complaining about immigrants. Ah, uh, but so you need to go complain, to Guangzhou. You need to go to Guangzhou. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, people complain about black people, uh, but it's not... I don't think they see them as people who are actually living there. I've I've spent very little time in Guangzhou. Guangzhou Uh might be kind of a big exception to that. But, you know, I think people would see them as more, oh, these are people who are here. They're here for a year or two. They're studying. They're not people we think are going to become part of the social fabric. And China's... Muslim problems, because there there are great social tensions between Han and Uyghurs, are not between Chinese and immigrants. They're between Chinese and Chinese, you know, Chinese of different ethnicities. Right. So I think that's a major exception. I think depending on how much credit you give globalization for China's economic rise, then I think a lot of the downsides of that can also be attributed to globalization. So like you mentioned, the horrific air in so many Chinese cities, you know, the the air that tastes like a glue factory and sort of (laughs) feels like clotted milk against your nose, you know, that kind of air. And the vast wealth uh, gaps that we have. I mean, I think I always remember it was, I was uh, in capital mansions in Beijing and the bellhop, who must have been 70 years old and, and looked like someone who had starved uh, when he was a kid which is you know not that uncommon for people of that age and there was a bmw outside and he pointed at it very proudly and said look chinese people have money now too and mm-hmm. it it was you know even though he was not by any means wealthy he was able to enjoy in the fact that his country was was standing up it was getting wealthy and and i, I imagine that a lot of the luster of that has worn off over the last five or 10 years. And then there's a lot more tensions between the have and the have-nots.
0: My sense is that this is something that Hai thinks about an awful lot. They they cannot not be watching this happening in, in other countries around the world. And at least I think during the Huwenwen administration, there was a real effort to try to address these, these issues. I mean, their, their focus on rural poverty, uh, their focus on um, spreading developments into the hinterland. Uh, but I, I don't really see quite as much of it happening during the Sierra, which I, th- I think may be something we need to, to be mindful of to, to watch for.
1: Yeah. I think along with that too, it's, it's interesting to see how she has sort of moved away from populist policies, right? You know, I, the, the Balza restaurant in Beijing, you know the kind of the man of the people kind of thing. He seems more; he seems to have grown stiffer, more formal. You know, a, a core leader as opposed to a a leader of the people. And and I wonder what dynamics are at play that that have made him walk away from that persona.
0: That that's a that's a very interesting question. Let's talk a little bit about now what the impact of a Trump administration is going to be for U.S.-China relations. I think there's been a widespread assumption, at least. Among many people here, I think you wrote an essay basically to this to this end uh, that Trump's foreign policy in Asia would essentially mirror kind of the pronouncements that he's made about Europe that you know he's critical of NATO. He seems unwilling to oppose Russian designs in former Soviet states of Eastern Europe, most obviously Ukraine, but also maybe even in the Baltic states. Some have assumed that despite his tough talk on trade, he would just you know pursue the same sorts of policies in China that he would reduce support for Japan and Korea or, or insist that they pay their way, no free rides. And you know he's even talked casually about letting Japan acquire nuclear capabilities. And uh, he'd be maybe unwilling to oppose Chinese designs on, on the Diaoyu Senkaku Islands or in uh, various flecks of coral in the South China Sea. So I mean, do you still stand by that? Do you, do you think that that would be a Trump foreign policy?
1: I think the most important thing to note at this stage, a day after the election, is there's so much uncertainty as to what his policy will be. You know, we, we can take what he's said up to this point, and we can say, okay, if he does this, then this is what his policy will look like. But it's also very possible that he throws out most of what he's said about Japan, about China, about other countries in the region, and finds an advisor that he likes, and basically starts from the ground up. Um, you know, that said, that's not a really helpful model to think about what he might do. But I just want to throw that out there as something sure. that's eminently but, possible. But we
0: we do have a sense for who some of his advisors are going to be. Uh, just one day before that fateful election, Foreign Policy, your, your alma mater, published a piece by Alexander Gray and Peter Navarro, who are both policy advisors to Trump. Gray is, in fact, a senior policy advisor to Trump. Uh, the piece is called Donald Trump's Peace Through Strength Vision for the Asia Pacific. And the author is kind of Portend a new cold war i mean this time with china of course uh we know who peter navarro is i mean maybe you can give a quick
1: uh
0: rundown of who he is
1: he's a harvard trained uc irvine professor who a business professor business school that right a business professor yeah. yeah and he he wrote a couple of books that were of the dark cover dragon on the <laughs> front page kind of thing uh I think one was called "Death, Death by, by China. China," right? And he made a yeah. movie out of it as well. Yeah, it's a there's a there's a book called "Becoming China's Bitch," and that was not Peter Navarro. I think that <laughs> takes the cake for the worst China title uh, for a book. But uh, I, I think you know Peter was very prescient in linking himself to Trump's rise, and I think he will. You know, if he keeps playing his cards right, he, he could have. A good amount of influence in a in a Trump administration. So I I think you know from what we've read from him from what we've heard from Trump and from Trump's savviness with gauging the moods of his voters, I think it would be very very surprising if he treated China the same way he treated Russia. You know, there, there's not a anger in America at Russia or the Russians like there is about China. You know, there's not a fear that the Russians are stealing American jobs, like there's a fear that the Chinese are are stealing American jobs. So I I think he's going to treat them quite differently. He might admire uh, President Xi, both publicly and privately, but I, but I think he's going to take a harder line there because he recognizes that that would be very satisfying to many Americans.
0: The grievances, the popular grievances that you've listed, though, are all about trade and all about you know globalization, and they have nothing really to do with the geostrategic balance of power, in, in, especially in, in in the Western Pacific and especially in the South China Sea. Do you think uh, that you know most Americans even care at all about? Uh, about freedom of navigation and, and issues like that? Do they do they really care? I mean, there aren't American lives being lost. There aren't lives being lost so far uh, in the South China Sea. Uh, there is n- no shipping being actually interdicted, and I can't imagine, depends on which way the ships are going, that, that Americans would even be, be that upset about interdiction of trade. Uh
1: I'd be very curious at how many times Trump has said the phrase "freedom of navigation" because it has it a lot? It has a lot more syllables than the words <laughs> that he usually uses. I mean, jobs, lives, troops, right, right. American lives, American troops, American jobs. You know, they they don't they. He he's a very very careful and, and savvy student of rhetoric, and I don't think I think people are angry that Chinese are building islands, building artificial islands. Uh-huh. I don't think it goes much beyond that in the the sense of nuance. And, and I, th- I think that's completely fair. I mean, you, you can't be an expert on everything going on in the world. You know, I, I try to think about uh, Bolivia. Bolivia for me is, is a country that I always have no idea what's going on there. And I just try to imagine if someone's telling me about Bolivia, they're going to have to explain it to me on the same level that I'm going to have to explain what's happening with China and with some issues with China in the South China Sea. Well,
0: let me tell you about Bolivia. No. Right, so, um, <laughs> I guess the other question is, how big of a place will human rights have in American diplomacy, especially as concerns China in this new Trump administration? Is this something that they're going to care about at all? Are they? Is Donald Trump going to meet with the Dalai Lama? Is he going to uh, to increase funding for the National Endowment for Democracy? Is he going to... Uh, to you know, raise human rights issues? Is he going to lobby for the release of political prisoners?
1: That's a very good question. I, I can't imagine him raising funding for the NED. That just would fit, it would go against a lot of what he's said about big government, small government. And I don't know if he's ever said anything about the Dalai Lama. You know, we have his off-quoted remark in 1990 about the you know appreciating what Beijing did to put down the... Tiananmen Square protests that culminated on June 3rd and 4th with a massacre in Tiananmen Square and then his partial walk back of that in one of the primary debates where he called it a riot which is the same language that Beijing likes to use when they describe what happened in Tiananmen but that's only one data point and I I think it's very important to, uh, to look at it this way we have what Trump has said and then there's going to be advisors, infrastructure, a government that's going to come in and is going to teach him about all of these things. There there was a nice uh, patronizing quote by a Chinese professor about Trump's victory where he said, oh, you know, now that Trump's elected, Trump's going to get taught what an exchange rate is. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of kind of basics of international governance that he did not need to know about for what he did before. And then now he does need to know about. So like with Japan. You know, Trump seems to viscerally hate Japan. And maybe it has something to do with a trade deal that went wrong in the 80s, maybe it has something to do with the fear back then that the Japanese were eating Americans lunch and were stealing American jobs, but for some reason he just he just seems to really dislike the country. And if that if he's able to translate that dislike into policy, then that will be really bad for Japan, will be really bad for the U.S.-Japanese Security Alliance, and it'll be great for China, which will be more able to exert influence in the region. But if Trump decides to get over that hatred, or if his Secretary of State is strong enough to ignore that, then we could have a much more measured policy with the U.S. and Japan, and it wouldn't give China such an upper hand in Northeast Asia.
0: What do you think he makes of Duterte, and now um, other countries like Malaysia, and of course Thailand, uh, since the coup uh, their kind of drift into the Chinese sort of uh, orbit.
1: You know, it's it's funny Duterte. I forget exactly what he said, but he he gave Trump a nice compliment. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, they them. are birds
0: of a feather. They're both sort of uh, loudmouth, uh, boorish people who can't <laughs> are easily baited and can't hold their tongues. Yeah.
1: Exactly, and so you kind of wonder if they are going to get along famously. And <laughs> I I don't think at this stage that he has much awareness of how, you know, of, of that sort of policy drift of, of Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines moving out of the U.S. orbit. And I think if he does, it's something that he might be okay with. I mean, I think the the idea is... Part of the appeal of Trump seems to be, well, we've focused so much on what's going on in the rest of the world, we really need to now focus on what's going on in America. Right. And if, if he sticks to that and has a very business-first approach, on the one hand, strategically, you know, maybe our influence will drop off. On the other hand, if he does remove human rights from the equation and doesn't press it with countries like Malaysia or Cambodia or Thailand— it could be that they are more receptive to American influence. That's certainly possible.
0: Right. Uh, Actually, I I, I tend to think that that's that's the way it worked between 2001 and 2008. uh, After September 11th, America very, very conspicuously let off on, on human rights, on pressing China on human rights. And during that same period of time, I think it's fair to say that we saw a pretty significant advance in specifically all those things that we wanted, we want you know an expanding public sphere, more media freedoms, a, you know more robust NGO sector and civil society more generally. A, by a lot of measures, I think there was there was advance. You know when when America wasn't quite so uh, sanctimonious and high-handed. Hmm. So yeah, that that's, means that's, 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 that's a topic that's... for another time. But uh, that I, I, that may be the case here. Um, you mentioned that it much is going to depend on who Trump actually has as his advisors, who actually has his ear. Do we know, uh, aside from people like Alexander Gray and Peter Navarro, who might have his ear?
1: We don't know who has his ear on international issues. On China know stuff specifically, that, yeah. Yeah, we, we, really, we really don't know that. You know, We know Giuliani is close. We know the chairman and CEO of Breitbart is close. We know that his so neither Excuse of these me. people is
0: exactly a deep thinker on, on foreign policy issues so.
1: <laughs> exactly Yeah, I think that's a it's a fair understatement but maybe, maybe I, I
0: flatter myself to think that my little show is being listened to by people who might actually be tapped by a Trump administration um, you know it's not unusual for I think uh, new administrations to look to um, you know town watching circles and, and we've seen in, in past administrations many people who you know you and me probably both know personally, get tapped for such jobs. Uh, what should we do? Our, I mean, I think a lot of us are just revolted by this man, by what he represents. But on the other hand, don't we want him to have good advisors on important issues, on especially such an important bilateral relationship?
1: it's a really really tough moral question yeah. and i i think it's the question that people in vichy france faced and people in you know kind of less clearly horrific regimes have faced and and continue to face throughout the world it's is trump
0: did you just morally- say that vichy france was a a less horrific regime than than trump's
1: no, I, I didn't say that. Uh, I'm glad you clarified. Yeah, no, I, I do not want to, uh, I do not believe that. I'm saying, you know, that regime and then right. less uh, less horrific regimes that okay. are around the world today, uh, you know, there's, there's the question if you're, you know, you're a capable civil servant in a country like Turkey or even, you know, parts of Europe that have seen kind of very right-wing parties take power. And the the views of the leader is, is very very far away from your own views. How much of a sacrifice do you make? And you know, how much can you say? Oh, I'm benefiting the country uh, by by being here, and therefore I should have to overlook some of the morally odious things I, I feel about this person. And how much do you just be a conscientious objector? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, it sort of reminds me, and and I'm not again, I'm not saying that. Uh, the Trump uh, administration is anywhere near as bad as North Korea, but it sort of reminds me of the debate on whether or not to visit North Korea and give right, right. Tourist, right. Dollars tourist dollars to, to the regime. It's like, okay, on the one hand, you know, you're giving them money. On the other hand, openness is very important. So, I think that's kind of a, a long-winded way of saying. You know, for people listening who might be considering it, I don't have a good answer for you, but think long and hard and follow your moral compass on it.
0: Good advice. Let's talk about how Chinese admirers of democracy might have been affected by what they've witnessed just now, and uh, what this all means for China's prospects itself for for eventual pluralism. I guess first, I want to I want to note that you know there is this widespread tendency to see democracy and American democracy as as the same thing. When of course, you know, democracy is is uh, it takes many forms. Right. Uh, there are plenty of democratic governments around the world that are functioning perfectly fine that are not you know, in the American style. I do tend to see that when democracy is debated among Chinese friends of mine, they conflate these two things, you know, American and, and, and democracy. Uh, they don't talk about the other democratic governments. But anyway, Trump's uh, election seems to have given kind of ammunition to all sides on the debate about democracy in China. Right. I mean, we've we've talked about this a little bit. We've looked at it. You know, critics of democracy. And, you know, again, this just means American democracy. Hold that that Trump's victory is proof that that democratic processes can elevate to the highest office in the U.S. and maybe even, you know, the highest office in the world. A guy who was just singularly unfit for any high office. He's never even held an elective office before. And of course, you're familiar with that long litany of faults that his critics would roll out, to say, you know, have completely disqualified him. But on the other hand, I read a lot of people who are defending American democracy who say that this just really proves that the system is indeed responsive to the voice of the people, however inchoate or irrational that voice might actually be. So who's winning this, this argument in China?
1: I think right now, the people who think this sh- this proves that American democracy is a reality show, you know, by the clowns for the clowns, uh-huh. uh, are are certainly winning at this stage. I, I think if Trump turns out to be a George W. Bush, then uh, the pro democracy folks in China are going to reap huge windfalls from this. You know, if he turns out to be a merely mildly Feckless president, who's one of the worst that we've ever had, then it's a great illustration of how the system works. If he beats Bush and James Buchanan for (laughs) the title of worst worst, president ever, (laughs) then I think we're going to see a lot of ammunition that really that this is this is creaking and straining and even in some places bursting the system and a good indication that american democracy at its roots has some fatal flaw
0: they won't be able to see the u.s as the beacon no no more shining city on gleaming city
1: on the hill huh nope nah, nah. nope nope yeah <laughs> but I mean, very early to say i mean he, he could he could i mean and he also could you know he's he certainly Beat my and many of my colleagues' expectations many times in the past, and he could turn out to be a halfway decent president. It's it's certainly possible. And
0: finally, I mean, I, I just want to ask what what are what are the the political elites in Beijing thinking? I mean, I, I'm talking about the Politburo Standing Committee. How how do you imagine they're reacting to this right now?
1: Again, just you know, with the huge caveat that sure, we're all guessing. Right? It, yeah. Uh, I think they're worried. I, I think this is something, you know, they like to have a brief that says, Hillary Clinton said these four things on the South China Sea. Here's her top three advisors on the South China Sea. Here's what the top 10 China, you know, Chinese experts on America think about Hillary Clinton. And here's the next meeting that you have with her. And here's what you should think about that. And the guessing for Trump you know, is by nature just so much more pronounced. They, they just really don't know. So they have this big gap in their knowledge right now, which is how do we deal with the new head of America? It's very distracting. And I think it's worrying for some of the things that they want to get done that they need American cooperation with.
0: And so you think that their preference ultimately would have been for a Hillary victory?
1: I think their grudging preference, but grudging but clear preference, would be for Hillary victory. You know, the devil you
0: know. Very interesting. So on a lighter note, there's this Chinese artist named Li Shuang, who's now at at NYU, who started making these handbags last year that read, I don't know if you've seen these around. I've seen them actually. Marry me for Chinese citizenship. Hmm. <laughs> it's very funny. I guess like I've I've actually only been in New York maybe you know half dozen times in the last year, but I've I've seen them actually on subways. Uh, but huh. last night, you know, as we know, the the Canadian immigration site crashed from all the northbound traffic. Uh, uh. And uh, do you think that there might be an interest now? Uh, I I know a lot of people were sort of watching me agonizing last night on various social media platforms and telling me, well. I guess you're going back to China now, right? <laughs> you think anyone's <laughs> gonna head head that way, where at least the you know there were there. It's also authoritarian, but at least it's run by these people who are you know reasonably benign technocrats. Maybe
1: I, I do think you know even on a, on a more somber note that yes, I, I do think people will you know people who are sort of considering what to do or have different job offers will be more likely to go to beijing or go to shanghai and i think there's also you know it's it's almost impossible for foreigners to get chinese citizenship right and when when they do get it they they find that the values are are quite limited um i don't know if this is still true but remember a couple years ago there were only two countries in the world that chinese could get into without a passport Without a visa? Uh, no, it's uh, it's, it's
0: an increased now. There are quite a few now, but
1: is there few, I, mean, I think maybe as of like two thousand and twelve it was like Benin and Sri Lanka. <laughs> so it's still, you know, you, you do much better with an American passport. Right, but sure. I can see people wanting to move there and just because it's not Trump's America. And there's you know, as you and I know there's a lot of great things about living in Beijing and living in China.
0: Absolutely. I do miss the place. Isaac Stonefish, it has been great having you on and thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Kaiser, thanks for the awesome questions and really good to be on.
0: Hey, I look forward to reading more about you, uh, more from you about U.S.-China relations in the age of Trump. Uh, so stick around with me and make a recommendation for our listeners. I'm gonna do a quick plug here before we get to recommendations. I want to remind our listeners that the Syndica Podcast is powered by SubChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at subchina.com. You can follow SubChina on Twitter at at SupChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina news. If you like the cynical podcast, by all means, please leave us a positive review on the Apple Store or on Google Play or wherever it is that you go to review apps. This stuff really helps. It means a lot to us. So, Isaac, recommendations. Why don't you get us started?
1: Yeah. So, when... I saw what appeared to be the world crumbling last night. <laughs> I went to YouTube and to Leonard Cohen, and he just has this, this mournful, soothing voice, and you know, like you're bathing in whiskey, that mm. seemed like the the right thing at the time. Bathing in um,
0: whiskey last night would have been the right thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's often the right thing to do. Uh, the, the other plug with that, I, I always remember I had a, a very – close Chinese friend who spoke excellent English. And I asked her one day how she was feeling and she said, melancholy. And I, I didn't know the word. And then I realized she was pronouncing melancholy, melancholy. And I would I would also like to plug for that pronunciation. I, I think that's a nice, you know, with Leonard Cohen's, you know, with his sounds, I think there's a there's something nice yeah. about that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. it does sound a little silly, but I think uh, maybe in the right context, it's it's a good <laughs> pronunciation of the word. Uh,
0: yeah, Leonard Cohen. There's a there's a terrific piece actually in a recent, maybe like three weeks ago, in the New Yorker by Remnick himself, where he, he talks to him. I think it was just on the eve of Dylan having gotten the the uh, Pulitzer. I'm sorry, the Nobel for Literature. And I think there are probably a lot of people who think that Cohen, who himself was actually a poet and and a very very talented writer, his his lyrics maybe stand alone better as poetry than Dylan's
1: Anyway. I, I I I very much hear you on that. There's a nice uh Dylan had a nice backhanded compliment for Cohen in that piece. You know, he said, out, oh, you know, you're the your songwriter number one. And the implication then stated was, you know, Dylan is, is number zero. Dylan Dylan's above the <laughs> system.
0: <laughs> yeah, backhanded indeed. Okay, yeah. so uh great recommendation, Leonard Cohen. Uh he has a new album out, right? It's called um, what is it? So You Want It Darker or something like that?
1: Ooh, that's a that's, yeah. a that's a very comforting name. I
0: haven't listened to it yet. Have, have you listened to it? I have not. No. I'll, I I've got it on Spotify. I'll, I'll check it out. I actually mm. listened to I think, maybe one tune from it. Anyway, um my mm. recommendation for the week. Thanks. That's a great one. Um my recommendation for the week was I came across a tweet the other night um from a Chinese American guy named John Drew. Uh, who lives here in the Triangle region of North Carolina, where I do. I do. And uh, he had said something nice about a piece that I'd written, and I clicked on his bio and saw that he was also a podcaster and that he actually records a podcast at threekingdomspodcast.com, uh, the number three, and then kingdomspodcast.com, uh, as somebody who is an avid fan of Lo Guanzhong's classic about, you know, the turmoil at the end of the Han Dynasty and the whole period of the Three Kingdoms, I was really intrigued. And it turns out that he's doing this ongoing retelling of the entire romance of the Three Kingdoms in very colloquial English done hmm. in like one hour installments of which there are now well over 90. Uh, he's working. I can see kind of I, I, I talked to him. I actually got in touch and we had lunch earlier and we talked about his his. Um, his podcast. This was before the world changed, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> he had actually come to the states from Guangzhou, when he was ten. He works at Duke. A really great guy. Uh, he he was he's working off the Moss Roberts translation of that's called Three Kingdoms. It's a terrific translation. Uh, hmm. And so I actually may have connived my way into a guest read of one of his scripts. So I think I may be the voice of, of one of them for an hour. I'm oh, really nice. To, yeah, yeah I, I've i really like reading out loud and it'll be fun um i'll certainly get him on the show on Seneca here to talk about the enduring appeal of three kingdoms and it's you know surprising relevance i think to contemporary china anyway if you are interested in in chinese literature in three kingdoms in war and strategy and in anything like that i highly recommend you give it a listen it is terrific
1: Hmm, that sounds fascinating
0: yeah it's it's a lot of fun um Thanks again, Isaac. Uh, Hey, thanks for having me. Chin up, man. Keep a stiff upper lip as they say. We're going to (laughs) get through this. Amen. That we will. Okay, take care. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Thanks this week to Eric Fish for helping us out with sound. And do be sure to listen to his Asia Society podcast, which he's been doing for over a year now. Special thanks this week to anla Chang Cheng and to Soraya Darabi from SupChina. Drop us an email at sineca at SupChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at, at Sineca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.